Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and filmmaker Jose Antonio Vargas. Vargas is the founder of Define American, a nonprofit organization that uses storytelling to shift the conversation about immigration. Vargas was in residence as the Morse Chair at the UO's Wayne Morse Center for Law and Politics in conjunction with the center's 2017 through 19 theme of inquiry, borders, migration, and belonging. During his residency, Vargas gave a talk titled Define American, My Life as an Undocumented Immigrant on October 24th, 2017. Thank you, Jose, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm not going to ask you to tell me your life story because <laughs> you'll I know your ways and we'll hear all about it. But I did want to ask you, how did you come to be a journalist? Why was that the, the, the uh, path that you chose? Um, that was so not the path. You know, I think any immigrant will tell you that the first thing we know about America is by television and movies. So I was obsessed with film um, because of the public library. Mm -hmm. So I actually wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be Frederick Wiseman. I think that was like my, <laughs> I was like, I would borrow those films at the library of just these films that would just go on and on for hours. like. Right, and I was like, "What is this film?" Uh, I was fascinated by it, and I thought I wanted to do that. And then, you know, I was like, "What, 13, 14, 15? And then found out I was here as an undocumented person when I was sixteen. When I got had to get a driver's license and realized that my green card was fake. And then, I think for like eight months or so, that was probably like one of the darkest times because I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Right, it's not like I can just go look for information on Google or talk to anybody about it. I felt like, you know, talking about it would make it worse. This is my 16-year-old self. Mm -hmm. And then Mrs. Dewar, the, my English teacher, sophomore English teacher, said I asked too many annoying questions and I should be a journalist. <laughs> I had no idea what a journalist is. Like, you know, I grew up in a working class Filipino household where mm -hmm. there were no books in the house. We didn't read anything. We didn't. You know, like, reading was not something that we do. Uh, it's just not part of our lives in that way, right? So I would never have thought of being a writer. I could barely speak English well, much less write it. Um, but when she said that, you know, she handed me the school newspaper, and then I realized that when you write something, your name is attached to it. So I thought, if I can't be here because... If I cannot be here because I'm here illegally without papers, well, what if my name was on the paper, mm. right? I mean, that was my 17-year-old justification. That was the only reason why I became a journalist, mm. was just that. So how, how did you get to be such a good one? Every, I mean, you're a Pulitzer well, Prize-winning journalist. That's Every copy of The New Yorker, I think I read and wrestled with, because I so did not understand most of what, what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think any writer will tell you that, you know, writing is reading, right? And so it's like kind of the same process. So I just read a lot. Like, I read a lot. I read everything that I couldn't understand. Like, Gore Vidal confused me. Gore Vidal, Norman Mailer. Like, I, I think once I was obsessed with um, um, Forward. Mm -hmm. it's, it was this Jewish publication. I was, I was, what is this? Like, I was just, you know, I just kind of ate everything around me. And I think that's how I was allowed to kind of develop my own skills about how to write and what it means to write. I actually think, you know, 
I'm still more of a journalist than a writer. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think my goal, my personal artistic goal, is to become more of a writer in the mm -hmm. next few years. Mm -hmm. uh, but that takes time, you know, that actually means having the time to write, <laughs> right? And which is the most difficult thing to do. Writing is the most difficult, the most difficult thing I do. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, so you, you're, you know, your career is going along. Yeah. You're concealing your undocumented status. To every this employer. Time. Every employer. Yeah. You, you know, you, 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 you get the attention of some of the higher ups and the various uh, journalistic venues that you work for. You get on this team that does this yeah. reporting. You get a Pulitzer Prize. Your life goes on. You've now made us. There's a small group of mentors that know that you're undocumented, but yeah, still the vast, major yeah. vast majority of people don't know. Something suddenly happens, and you decide. It was I'm a gonna, 2008. Gonna, it was a 2008 campaign. I'm going to yeah. tell the truth. So what, what? What? Well, I mean, it was kind of a confluence of things. I, I always knew. I mean, I you know I said this during my talk during the talk that you had mentioned that if I wasn't for the state of Oregon. I would not have had a journalism career, mm -hmm. right? Meaning, no, I mean, no offense to the San Francisco Chronicle, but it's not the Washington <laughs> Post, right? So if I hadn't had a driver's license from the state of Oregon for eight, that was valid for eight years, I would not have had eight years to build a career as fast as I did. Mm -hmm. You know, there was an article, I usually don't read about myself, but now that I have to write about personal stuff, I'm rereading some of these articles, mm -hmm. and somebody said, meteoric rise in journalism in my head, it's not like that. In my head, it was like, I had eight years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, how can I get from the San Francisco Chronicle to the Washington Post to the New Yorker in eight years? Right? Like, how do I do that? So that was where my head was at. Mm -hmm. And I was just really um, fortunate that kind of the events kept building, meaning mm -hmm. covering the, the 2008 campaign as a political reporter. It was my first ever presidential campaign and I was a political reporter for the Washington Post and like traveling around driving around with my Oregon license in Iowa in Ohio following Sarah Palin was surreal you know the whole time thinking someone is going to find out that I'm not even supposed to be here you know covering Sarah Palin um, and then when I got the exclusive profile of Zucker Mark Zuckerberg for the New Yorker mm -hmm. I think that was like that was definitely, you know, what is that saying? The broke the camel's back thing? Yes, the straw that broke the camel's that. back. <laughs> that, like, that was that. It was like, it was that moment where I was like, I have always wanted to write for The New Yorker, and so here I am writing for The New Yorker, getting paid a lot of money to write one article for The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. And this license from Oregon was gonna expire. Then what do I do? Do I tell Zuckerberg? <laughs> I was actually thinking maybe I tell him while we're walking and see if he can help. But you I'm profiling. Though. I did not. <laughs> I'm profiling Zuckerberg. Yeah, like right. if I tell him, then I make him part of the problem. Right. And then my job is to profile him in the most fair way, right? right? Like mm -hmm. I didn't want to make him a part of it. But those are the kind of calculations, you know, anybody who has a secret will tell you that, right? Like who do you tell and what is the cost of them knowing? So you have this other secret, which you, you came out about much earlier. Oh, the gay thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was, yeah. So, so say about this, I mean, because you said some really interesting things at the talk about how coming out of the gay closet helped you understand about coming out of the closet as an undocumented. Well, I mean, thank God for Ellen. You know, yeah. I was saying that, you know, Ellen DeGeneres on the cover of Time Magazine, first of all, that was the first magazine I ever bought. Like, I actually bought it at Walgreens. 
and hid in my backpack between my chemistry book and my geometry book. And I remember going home and hiding the magazine in the closet mm. because I didn't want my grandparents to see wow. it because they'd be like, why are you buying this magazine? And it says that this woman's gay, right? So, but that was like, you know. Was that 97? That was, ni no, that was 98. 98, okay. Actually, hold on. It was 97, the cover. Mm -hmm. I came out in 98, a few months later. And you're like, how old? At, when I was out? at the time, I was 17. And you're in your history class or something? I was in the US history class, AP History, Mr. Farrell. We were watching the Harvey Milk documentary. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. a phenomenal documentary, The Life and Times of Harvey Milk. And the end of the documentary, Harvey Milk says, you know, uh, come out, come out, wherever you are, <laughs> right? And so I was just, I raised my hand and told the whole class that I was gay. And, you know, my girlfriend at the time, Patricia, didn't know that this was happening until brunch, until, <laughs> until the break when people were like, Jose just came out in class. And, but here's the beautiful part. The whole school was so supportive. Mm. The principal, the superintendent, like I was the first person to come out in the, in, in the campus, right? And I could not have had a more welcoming, supportive, you know, while at home, it was really just confusing. Mm -hmm. um, school was very clear. School was home, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And this is why I care so much about, you know, or how I'm so indebted to teachers. Mm -hmm. Like, I can name it every single one. <laughs> um, and how indebted I am to what school represents, right? Um, and I was just lucky that I happened to have been at a school that was so supportive. So when you, when the 2011 article comes out in the New York Times Magazine where you yeah. say, uh, I'm here, I'm yeah. here, I'm a, what did you think would happen? What did you think would be the result it of that? It certainly is not what happened, yes, right? right? Like, right. I mean, I had, to, I had to be prepared for, is someone just gonna show up and deport me? Um, I had some money in the bank, where does the money go? Would they then, would they then freeze my bank account? Um, I have a lot of furniture, what happens to that? <laughs> Like, like all these, so I had gone through kind of the, um, I was as prepared as you can be prepared about something that you didn't know what would happen. Mm -hmm. But what I did not think would happen was utter silence mm -hmm. from the government. Mm -hmm. I thought the government would be after me, right? I didn't think that they would be like, we're not touching that. <laughs> you know, like we're just not, I mean, it's not like the administration doesn't know who I am. I cover them in the campaign, you know? And so, um, and, you know, D.C., like the bubble, the Acela Express bubble of, you know, D.C. and New York was, you know, it's interesting now reading back, as I said, I'm reading back on what happened. I had tried really hard not to read about anything because, you know, like especially because I make films, I try not to read about what people are writing about it because it would impact how I think about myself. And I don't want that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I had forgotten how much criticism I had received from media reporters. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that part. I mean, I did. I probably wanted to forget it because it was so hurtful. But I was like, you know what? I just I have bigger fish to fry than media critics, you know. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But reading back at it now, it was pretty. You know, I had spent my entire life wanting to be included in this journalistic club, mm -hmm. in a way, and then to be like, okay, you lied. What else did you lie about? Mm -hmm. Like, how can you trust a liar? I just read that recently. Somebody actually said, how do you trust this liar? Um, and comparing me to Janet Cook, mm -hmm. which is like a horrid, horrid thing to do. Um, because, you know, I've written, what, more than a thousand articles in my entire career and probably, what, four corrections and most of them are name related. 
you know, my work. Look, you can want, if you want to detain me, you want to deport me, you want to do whatever you want to do, my work speaks for itself and it speaks very loudly. Um, and so no one can ever take that away. So you, you told us about the cover of Time Magazine with Ellen on it. Tell us about the cover of Time Magazine with Jose Antonio Vargas on it. So that was, you know, my big um, gratitude really to Rick Stengel, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Time Magazine, mm -hmm. the managing editor of Time Magazine. And he was the one I called. I said, you know, I haven't heard from the government. Um, I want to write a follow-up story about what they plan to do with me, and I actually want to call the Department of Homeland Security myself and ask them. And he thought it was a crazy idea. <laughs> But if you're into it, let's do it, right? And so I reported this 5,000-word piece. And what I did, actually, the editor, Tom Weber, it was his idea to structure it, God bless editors, to structure it after all the questions I get asked, mm -hmm. right? Like questions like, why haven't they deported you? I don't know. Talk to the government. Um, why can't you just get yourself legal? Mm -hmm. That's the number one question. Mm -hmm. People's understanding of this issue is so close to none mm -hmm. that they think getting legal is as simple as just showing up at City Hall, filling out a form, bumping somebody off a line, and poof, I have welfare stealing your job, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we structured it upon that, and then when they said we were thinking of putting you in the cover, I remember talking to the photo editor, and they're like, yeah, we're thinking, you know, maybe putting you in the cover and we'll do a shadow thing, and I'm like, I was, I wrote them a note, I remember I wrote them an email saying, um, I think it would be much better if we got ourselves more undocumented people with me. Now rem remember, this was in like, this was a time when there was no protection mm -hmm. for young undocumented people. Mm -hmm. So to find 30, 33 undocumented young people to, on a four day notice, fly to New York City, right, to be on a photo shoot that would get on the cover of Time. We didn't even tell them that it was beat for Time Magazine. Hmm. We just told them you have to show up, we'll pay for the plane ticket, we'll get you a hotel, you can't ask any questions, please show up. And I remember there was this guy, uh, Vincent, um, that was from Alabama, from Birmingham, who had never been on a plane hmm. and didn't have ID. Hmm. We had to coach him how to get through TSA, right, and not freak out, right? That was really, you know, and of course they announced DACA the, the day, actually. I think the, I think the Obama administration knew about the time cover happening. I didn't tell them. Hmm. Um, so I don't know how that happened. But um, meaning all of that happened so fast that we weren't even really even aware. We, we couldn't really even explain how the cover came about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The story behind that to me is just so beautiful. And to this day, probably like one of the proudest moments of my journalistic career. You said there were 33 people yeah, on that cover? Yeah, 33 people. Uh, from how many? Uh... From 15 different countries, mm -hmm. right? And that was the hardest part, you know, like insisting on being inclusive. Mm -hmm. That, by the way, is the real challenge on this issue. We have so cornered the issue and made it about Mexico and the border and the wall that people's understanding of it, the journalists' understanding of it, mm -hmm. is very limited. Right. Uh, Mexicans are, in fact, not the largest group of undocumented immigrants. I mean, they're the largest group, but the they're fastest, fastest growing, growing group are actually Asian, Asian. immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. One out of seven Koreans in this country is here illegally. Um, black immigrants are way more likely to get arrested and detained and deported than any other immigrant group. You said there were um, Germans on that cover. Yeah, Manuel. There was a, we found an undocumented German <laughs> uh, from Ohio. Um, that was really important to me. 
uh, an undocumented woman from Nigeria. You know, I remember talking to her on the phone saying, I really need you to come. You know, like it would, it would, it, it would be, it would be such an important um, opportunity and it would be a mess if we didn't have your face there. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, she didn't know me. So it was like, you know, using your capital as a reporter to be like, please trust me. <laughs> like, this is going to be good. And I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure. And, you know, the whole time I kept thinking, can you not put me on the front? Because mm -hmm. I felt bad that I was like on the front and all these mm -hmm. people were behind me. Mm -hmm. But I had no control over that. Um, but I was just, and what I loved too is how they handled it. There were, there were people doing makeup. So, like, I just think the dignity in which Time Magazine went around doing that was for me, extraordinary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It it marks that that cover sort of marks another sort of transition in your in your journey. Yeah, you 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 sort of come off of that cover. You're now an activist. You sort of become yeah. An activist. I, but you know, I I have such a. I was rereading Howard Zinn recently, which uh -huh. is always a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> the artists in the time of war, right? I, I look like I have no control over who's an advocate, who's an activist, or what labels I get called, mm -hmm. but I don't consider myself an activist. Okay. I don't, I just don't, I just feel like, in some ways, I've always been, I, I do what I've, I'm doing what I've always done. Mm -hmm. The difference is, there's, my being is actually now personally at stake. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? How do you, how do I do this work? and make sure that it doesn't become like the Jose Antonio Vargas show, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? That was my biggest fear from the very beginning, yeah. that it would be so me, 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 and mm -hmm. that's why I think I went out of my way, right? If you go to defineamerican.com, like, you don't even see my face on the homepage, mm -hmm. right? Like, you see all these other stories, right? The danger of just the single story. I didn't want to do that. I could have just done that. Mm -hmm. Many people said, just do that, mm -hmm. you know? But I didn't. So let's talk about Define American. Yeah. What is Define American and why did you create it? Why did so you found it? for us, Define American in a way is a correction, <laughs> is a correction of all the narratives that were being told about immigrants in this country. Mm -hmm. So our job, so we're not a legal services provider, right? There's enough people doing that work and thank God for them. We are not lobbying for any piece of legislation or policy. There's enough people doing that. Our job is how do we create a culture in which what they do is acceptable? Like here in Oregon, how do we create a culture in which people think of driver's licenses as a lifeline for undocumented people, mm -hmm. not a reward for quote unquote criminals committing acts, right? So that's a cultural shift. I mean, you know, during the talk I said, in this country, as, as a gay man, I, I'm grateful that I live in a country in which somebody says something homophobic, it's for the most part largely unacceptable culturally. Right? People jump at them, they have to apologize, they have to give money to gay organizations. You say something anti-immigrant, what happens? You get to the White House. Mm -hmm. That's a cultural shift. Um, so our job is to humanize the issue and insist on the complexity of the issue, which is a hard thing to do in these very simple times mm -hmm. in which we are being governed by tweets. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a hard thing to do. So you, two of the things you do are storytelling. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. And so why is storytelling part of this uh, strategy really the central cultures. the so central of the how central does part storytelling do so, this job so when someone tells a story right someone comes out as undocumented let's say for example a black immigrant comes out as undocumented so when they share when they trust us enough to share that story what do we do with it 
right? The first thing we do is we put it on the website, and then what happens is journalists contact us. Like, for example, there's a journalist in Ohio a couple of weeks ago. Hey, I'm in Dayton, Ohio. I'm looking for someone who's a DACA recipient, mm -hmm. right? Somebody who has the deferred action for childhood rivals. Mm -hmm. So I, we connect that reporter to somebody who has that and then help the person guide through how do you talk to a reporter? Can you trust the reporter? That's one aspect. Mm -hmm. The other aspect to me that is even just as exciting is writer's rooms. So we now send a lot of undocumented people to writer's rooms of television shows mm -hmm. who want to integrate immigrant storylines in their shows, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So for me, telling the story is just the first step, right? How you operationalize that so that the story becomes a way for people to understand what this is mm -hmm. through the news media, through the entertainment media. That's kind of the gist of what we do. So on the on the on the you just mentioned the entertainment yeah. media part of it. So one of the things that you've worked hard to overturn is the sort of way in which the entertainment media has represented undocumented and, and immigrants, immigrants in general. In general, there are 43 million immigrants in this country. 43 million, right? That's about 15 percent of the population. Um, as I said last night in the talk, I mean, this is really really important. Those 43 million people are going to constitute 88% of the total population growth of this country in the next 50 years, mm -hmm. according to Pew, mm -hmm. right? And the way they're portrayed is completely disproportionate to their mainstream impact. Mm -hmm. We're not marginalized people. We are not the minority. We're actually the new mainstream. Mm -hmm. And the sooner we get to understand that, I think the sooner we can grapple with the reality that America is changing, right? The question, though, is like, to what, like, you know, is it changing for the good or mm -hmm. the bad? I would argue for the good, right? So one of the things that Define American does is is provide information, facts. Fa facts tell, and stories. Tell us some, in, some of the facts that support the claim that the immigrants are doing good. For well, it, it's, it, it's not even doing good because, you know, like that's a value um, judgment, right? It's more, right. what are the facts? So. Yeah. For example, um, the fact that undocumented immigrants pay billions of dollars in state and local taxes and contribute billions in Social Security. That is not a fact that you hear on NPR. It's not a fact that you, that you read in the New York Times or even the New Yorker, right? Even the quote-unquote liberal media does not print these facts mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit the narrative, mm -hmm. right? Um, it doesn't fit the narrative that these illegals are here to take, 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 mm -hmm. and they're the ones actually responsible for the collapse of the welfare state. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't promote that agenda. Mm -hmm. Talk about having an agenda. I would argue that the news media actually has an agenda that is very anti-immigrant without knowing what it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been doing some reading of the local uh, news organizations in the state of Oregon. Same pattern, mm -hmm. right? Like one out of 10 Oregonians is an immigrant, right? You have a very sizable immigrant workforce. And yet, the way immigrant Oregonians are covered is pretty simplistic, right? Um, but that's, that's why it's important that we help, that some people call advocate for better coverage. The journalist in me is like, I just want you to tell better, more accurate stories. stories. Yeah. So yeah. another thing that you do, and you mentioned, is uh, on the, so there's the entertainment media part, but then there's the news media part. You yeah. train immigrants, undocumented immigrants, to go on conservative talk radio, conservative. Fox News. Now, help me to understand. By the way, that's this. really hard to do. Yeah, no, I've watched you on that. In that. oh gosh, so yeah. I, as a theoretical commitment, I understand that. But why is that a good thing? I mean, do you think that there are voice, there are viewers for those outlets who are oh gosh, educable? 
Absolutely. Uh-huh. I know this because I've met many of them. Uh-huh. So this is how I've gotten to visit you know, places like Nebraska, Oklahoma, where the president of the Chamber of Commerce is watching me in Bill O'Reilly's show and is very confused, writes me an email saying, I would love to bring you to Nebraska mm. to talk to our members, mm. right? Because when I do those shows, my audience is not Bill O'Reilly, Tucker Carlson, Lou Dobbs, or Megyn Kelly when mm-hmm. she was at Fox. Mm-hmm. My audience are the millions of people who watch them, mm. right, and complicate what they think and complicate what they hear. I mean, Fox is a propaganda anti-immigrant machine right, Mm -hmm. is uh, rather unparalleled in 21st century kind of media history. If you just studied what Fox has been able to do, right, and I remember in the beginning actually being criticized by progressive groups who were like, we're we're trying to delegitimize Fox, Mm -hmm. like, Jose, don't go there. Mm -hmm. And I listened to them for a couple of months, and I'm like, wait a second, though, like, are we legitimizing four million people that watch Bill O'Reilly every night? Like, are all those four million people racist, anti-immigrant people? No, right? Like, and so I don't think of Bill O'Reilly as my audience Mm -hmm. back then. I Mm -hmm. thought of the people watching him. Mm -hmm. And I know that it works because I have seen it happen. But the thing is, how do you do that? How do you get on those shows without losing your dignity and without losing kind of your ground? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's not my job. Tucker Carlson is not interested in hearing what I have to say. Mm-hmm. You've seen him. He yeah, just no, cuts no. you off. He yes. doesn't care. So how do you deal with that? I mean, that's... Oh, that's... I deal with that by like, okay, there are three points I need to make in mm-hmm. this seven-minute segment. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm going to hold on to them as much as possible and not lose my... Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes I'm not. I really hate cable television. Mm-hmm. I hate it. You know, I could have a career as like a full-time pundit if I wanted. I could just be on CNN every day talking to you about immigration with my three-minute sound bites. No. <laughs> you know, I refuse to, to, you know, and I'm saying this, I've been on those shows and I do them when I need to do them. But for the most part, I am just not sure how much they add to actual discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, shows like this, like, you know, as I said, I grew up with Charlie Rose and Bill Moyers. Mm-hmm. Like, I learned more understanding America and kind of kind of what kind of the intellectual conversations about America. Like, I remember when I would watch Toni Morrison, I actually, if you see my phone, <laughs> it's literally Bill Moyers, Charlie Rose interviews with Toni Morrison. It's like what I listen to when I'm at airports. Like, I just constantly re-listen to them again. I just feel smarter. It's like listening to Sondheim. You know, you feel smarter just like listening, you know? Um, Now, cheap, what passes for cheap intellect, what passes for actual dialogue and conversations is is part of the, you know, the corruption, I think, of this country right now. It's all of that stuff. It's like popcorn. You know, we have a popcorn president. We have a popcorn media that covers them. Um, we have one minute left. Yeah. So let me ask you another question. You're, the other thing that you are, among these very many things that you do, is a filmmaker. Uh, so tell me something about why that's important to you in, in less than a minute. <laughs> uh, Frederick Wiseman, Mike Nichols, Sidney Lumet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, fi- I, I like film because it's such a completely different experience than writing, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm so not in control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. writing, I'm in complete, utter control. It's a mess, but I'm in control. Film is the most collaborative process. Um, and it's interesting how there's 
something really freeing about film to me. Um, it makes me feel like I can really bear witness to somebody mm -hmm. and something that's happening. And it's interesting how I had to come out as undocumented to be what I've always wanted, to be just a filmmaker. Ah. Isn't that interesting? That is very interesting. And you know, I gotta love that, right? That's look, that's 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 part of my freedom is, you know, our job is to be how can we be our fullest self? And even with these limitations, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, on that very inspiring note, I wanna thank you, Jose, for oh. taking the time to speak thank with you us for today. Me. I've been speaking with journalist Jose Antonio Vargas. Vargas was in residence at the UO's Wayne Morse Center for Law and Politics during the fall of 2017 in conjunction with the center's 2017 through 19 theme of inquiry, borders, migration, and belonging. During his residency, Vargas gave a talk titled Define American, My Life as an Undocumented Immigrant on October 24, 2017. Thank you so much for watching.